Go ahead and grab a Bible and jump in with me this morning into Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, you can find Daniel after the book of Ezekiel. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel is there. Daniel chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at some verses in, in chapter 2, and then we're going to look at some in, in chapter 7. Um, I have quite a few um, scripture references today, so if you have the app, you can follow along in the notes, and you can track those um, at, uh, as you please. Um, you can flip there, of course, if you like, either way. Uh, but we're going to camp out mostly in Daniel 2 this morning. I want to talk about King Jesus all right, we are in our politics and religion series. We have talked about um, several things, but um, as you probably have already perceived, I have been building an argument that will eventually get us to talking about the role of civil government in a nation underneath the lordship of Christ. Like building a house, you don't start with the drywall, roofing, and the interior decor. Uh, you have to, to pour a foundation. You have to get the footers in place. And only then does the home have a solid foundation to build upon. In other words, I need you to understand a few things before we really delve into the issue of politics. So having said that, uh, let's look at some of the things that we've established so far. First thing in week one, only the Christian worldview gives coherent meaning to everything in life. Only the Christian worldview gives coherent meaning to everything in life. It does us no good to talk about politics, religion, sports, or even the weather if we don't start with God. If you don't have God as the foundation and source of all knowledge, you have brain gas and opinions which ultimately amount to nothing. If we're highly evolved accidentally made bags of meat and material, there's really no reason to believe anything about morality, about the world, and certainly about religion. That's why when atheists show up to a debate, they've already lost the debate. If we are evolved apes, there's no reason to believe, no justifiable reason to believe that we are evolved apes. It's stupid and it is futile. So that's what we started with. Only the Christian worldview. Only the worldview that is Christian, found in Scripture, following after Jesus, gives you coherency, gives you a meaning and rationale and justifiable reasoning for everything. Only that gives you meaning for, for everything in life. And then from there, we also talked about the Scriptures. Our presupposition is that the Bible alone is the standard of truth. We don't look outside of the scriptures to see if the scriptures are true. We start with the scriptures as truth. God has chosen to reveal himself through his word. Therefore, we believe it. We believe all of it. This is an incredibly important part of our discussion on politics, especially later on, because many of you have been taught to go to the Bible for answers for things like family, um, depression, anxiety, how to pray, what to know regarding the gospel, and so on and so forth. Um, you have not been trained to go to the Bible to learn about how men ought to govern themselves in the civil realm. We go to the Bible to learn about what we should think about the death of Christ, but we don't go there to learn how to punish a murderer or a rapist. And why is that? Well, we'll explore some of that in the next couple of weeks, of course. 
But for now, just know, if the premise is true, if the premise that God's word is the final standard and arbiter for all truth, then we must go to it even when it comes to something like civil government and how we govern ourselves. The other thing we looked at is this. Because everything is covenantal, right? Everything stems from God. Everything um, comes from Him. Everything is covenantal. We approach all things in life from the premise that it is either with God or against God. Nothing is neutral, So when it comes to politics, law, ethics, and morality, all of these ideas must be evaluated in terms of God's covenant law word. All things exist because of Christ. Therefore, all things are covenantally tied to God, which means that those things are either in line with God, with God, or out of line and against God. Either they will conform to the scriptures or they are enemies of the truth of scripture. So everything flows from God. Some things don't bow the knee to God. All things are are, are supposed to, including people, all things are to give their allegiance to God. And yet sometimes that doesn't happen, does it? Um, Sometimes um, things or, or people or institutions refuse to bow the knee to Christ, which means that nothing is neutral, remember, and which also means that it's at odds with the gospel itself. Everything must be evaluated. Everything must be judged. Everything must be discerned on these terms because not even a proton or neutron or electron is outside of God's sovereign control and direction. So this is foundational because everything is covenantal, nothing is neutral. So everything is either with God or it is against God. And then we also last week looked at the covenant model that we find in scriptures. Many of the ancient Mesopotamian treaties and everything, uh, the Hittite treaties and those types of things, um, those, all of those were really modeled after God's model because God's covenant model is built within the framework and fiber of all of cre- creation. So we checked out the covenant model of Scripture. Um, it's the, the transliteration here, the, the T-H-E-O-S, theos in Greek means God. So it's just kind of a, a way to, to point out these aspects. But your Bible is laid out in this fashion. Deuteronomy is laid out in this fashion. But it starts with the transcendence of God, this sovereign God who created and sustains everything. He is at the top He is um, immeasurable in the sense that nothing can be looked upon to give us any bit of clarity about who God is except for his revelation. He is the sovereign one. There is also a hierarchy. There is man. God created man. Um, This hierarchical system of law enforcement. There are roles and there is order. So when we look at how we should govern ourselves in terms of our families, what is the role of a husband who is the leader of his family? What is the role of a, of a wife who, who, who is to respect her husband? He is to love and serve her and she is to submit to his leadership and so on and so forth. There are roles and order. Those types of things are built within God's system. The third part is the ethics, the law, the law of God. Laws are the terms of the covenant. Um, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. The fourth element 
are the oaths. These are the, the oaths. This is the, the sanctions. An oath calls down God's judgment and God's blessings, which depend, of course, on covenant loyalty. Um, things happen in nations that do not bow the knee to Christ. Um, and not good things, mind you. That's what we're seeing right now in our nation. Um, we, we have relegated the Christian values, the Christian ethics, the law of God. We have devalued that as a culture, shoved it aside, pushed it out of the public square, and now we have what we have. Those are the sanctions of God in time, in space, in history. And the last part is the succession. This is the time element. This is a system of inheritance throughout time. Um, God's people uh, are going to inherit the earth, Scripture promises. And so everything goes back to this model. Everything, everything is, is, is uh, you can call it the grid, if you will. Um, this grid, these blueprints um, are for the covenantal house. Everything is established with this grid. And each of these elements are found all over the scriptures. And each of these elements are tied to God's covenant methods. Now, Satan tries to do the same thing because he can only mimic God. He's not creative, creative enough to do something new himself. Satan can only um, try to do what God does, but he has a centralized system. This is a decentralized system in the sense that God has established these parameters and Satan can't live up to them. But these, these are the things we have to con- constantly go back to whenever we talk about politics, whenever we talk about civil government. No matter the issue, whether it's social, so- socialism, right, and, and unjust theft, property rights, legitimate or illegitimate taxation. Does the Bible even talk about that? Of course it does. We'll delve into that in a little bit um, in a couple of weeks. But whatever the issue is, whether it's education or just war, what does it look like for a country to go to war? What's the righteous way to go to war, does Scripture even say? What about voting? What are we supposed to do? You name it. Whatever the issue is, all of it has to be assessed and evaluated through God's ethical, covenantal grid. And that's because we are biblical Christians, which is redundant in and of itself. Now, I'm going to delve into this next thing uh, in two weeks when we talk about the role of civil government, um, especially the one, one part of it. But, but um, Abraham Kuyper uh, developed really this biblical understanding of what we call sphere sovereignty, uh, that underneath God's transcendence, there is a hierarchical system. There are Four main social spheres, if you will, um, and, and I want to tell you what they are, and we'll get into those, of course, in, in two weeks, particularly the one sphere. The first sphere is individual. The individual person, you as a self-governed person before the transcendent God, you are accountable to him, you are to govern yourself as an individual before God. That's the one sphere. And these spheres have their own jurisdictions, their own authorities, their own biblical parameters. The other sphere is the family. God instituted the family at the very first at the gate, out of the gate with Adam and Eve and his family. That sphere has a certain um, sovereignty under the sovereignty of God. Um, the other, another sphere is the church. The church is entrusted with certain things. Um, the church is entrusted with the keys to the kingdom, as we're going to talk about today, the kingdom of God. Um, but the state also, that's the fourth sphere, um, has its own, if you will, um, sovereignty under the sovereignty of God. They are to uh, enact justice according to Romans 13. 
So that's kind of where we're at. Um, these are the spheres. Yeah, like I said, Abraham Kuyper really developed that. He, he died in the early, early 20th century. Um, he was a Dutchman. He was a statesman. He was a theologian. And um, I think he was right on on this. Uh, these spheres are all, um, they all have their jurisdiction. They have, each of them has their own roles and purposes and what have you. Um, and they are all under this hierarchy. They all owe their um, existence, if you will, to God. You have God who is the sovereign, Christ who is the ruler. He is mediating all of those things by his word. So all of us, individuals, the family, the church, and the state, all of those spheres are to give their allegiance to God. And so that is sphere sovereignty, kind of an introductory piece. Here's our main idea today. This is where I want to take us. The kingdom of God is a covenantal social order. I know that's not often how we think of the kingdom of God, but it is. It's a social order that invades all other social orders, bringing them underneath the lordship of Christ. Now remember, there's no neutrality, okay? And everything stems from God. Therefore, anything opposed to Christ will either be brought into submission to Christ or it will be destroyed by Christ. So the kingdom of God is a covenantal social order. That social order, the way God says things are supposed to be, invades things that are not yet and deals with them and either brings them in submission or they are eliminated, if you will. So before we dig into Daniel, I kind of want to remind you of of, uh, what has come before Daniel. All right, so we're going to get a couple thousand years of history very quickly. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read that God created all things. In the beginning, Berashit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He created out of nothing. He made everything that exists. And the pinnacle of his creation, his creative hand, was the creation of Adam and Eve. That was the highlight. That, that was the this is very good part. God was proud of his creation. He was even prouder with regard to Adam and Eve. They were given a covenantal edict, this covenantal edict of dominion. They were to work and keep the garden. They were to, to um, well, they were the first capitalists, right? They were the first capitalists in, in society. They were to expand the garden, right? They were to, to, to plant crops, grow crops, do farming, um, they were to build houses. They were to invent iPhones on much more productive networks and faster speeds, right? That was what they were supposed to develop. They were to make the world economically productive, do business, do education, do everything for God's glory. They were to expand the garden. That was the task given to them. And instead of being loyal to God, they ended up covenanting with Satan. They rebelled against God replacing God in the transcendence column of our covenant model. They replaced God with Satan. They were brought under his leadership. They were now ethical beings under his guidance and direction. They believed that Satan had a better covenant, a better system. So instead of working under God, the sovereign one, they began to work under Satan instead. But there was a promise issued from God. The very first gospel promise in the scriptures, Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. This is God's prophecy. He shall bruise your head. 
the offspring of the woman, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there, there's no neutral ground. Either, either men will fall in line under the proper hierarchical authority, or they will attempt to usurp God through Satan's mediation. Um, there will be offspring for mankind, but mankind will be basically divided up into two categories, those of God and those of Satan. Those of God's line, God's lineage, and those who are doing Satan's bidding. So the promise of Genesis 3.15 is that one of the offspring of the woman was going to come and crush Satan. His name is Jesus. Fast forward into history and we see God judge the world with the flood. He sends the flood and then God makes a covenant with Noah. Several chapters later, God makes another covenant. This time he makes a covenant with Abraham. All of the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. Who is the son of Abraham that blesses the world? The answer is Jesus. The calling of Abraham really was God's first step in establishing his post-flood kingdom in the world. He promised to make Abraham a great nation, and indeed he did. However, through a chain of events, the nation of Israel grew in large numbers, but they grew under the oppressive regime of the Pharaoh. Under the leadership of Moses, God's people were brought out of this slavery. They were brought out of Egypt And eventually they ended up going into the land um, of Israel after receiving God's covenant law through the mediation of Moses on Mount Sinai. But they eventually went in. If you remember who took them in, Moses was not allowed to go in because he has a temper problem. But Joshua, he led Israel into the land. But further down the road, after settling in the land, we're fast forwarding quite quickly, they get to a point where they want a king. They want a king like the other nations. God knew they would be better off without a king because men love power and men love to abuse power. But God grants the request and Saul becomes the first king in Israel. That doesn't last too long, however. And eventually, David came on the scene. Yet again, God made a covenant, this time with David. His kingly dynasty will never end. In fact, God will give him a son to rule, and this man will rule forever. Who was that man? Jesus. Through another chain of events, Israel, the northern kingdom, was wiped out by Assyria in 722 BC. They were taken away. And less than 200 years later, Judah, the southern kingdom, remember Israel split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, but at 586 B.C., Babylon came in, destroyed Jerusalem, and, and, and taken the Jews captive back to Babylon because of their sins. And so this is where we really find Daniel's story. Now, <clears throat> some quick, quick context before I read. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the ruler of Babylon, has a dream. And he wants someone to interpret this dream. His magicians were consulted, and he insisted that they tell him what the dream was and the interpretation. He wasn't even going to tell them the dream. He wanted to know what the dream was. He wanted to see if they would know what the dream was. None of them could do it, and so all of the wise men in Babylon were killed. Now, Daniel was one of the wise men. He was a prophet of Jehovah God who implored the captain of the king's guard not to kill him because he could interpret the dream. So here is Daniel's response to the king in Daniel 2. We'll pick it up in verse 31. 
You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image of, of its, on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation, Daniel says. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom... But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, listen to this, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut, from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So the king has a vision. And the vision was all about the future. We don't have time to go into details, but the kingdoms that come after are, are as follows. Remember, he says that you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the golden head. That's the Babylonian kingdom. After that is the Medo-Persian kingdom, then the, the, Greece, uh, the Grecian kingdom, and then after that, Rome. Rome would take charge. About 500-ish years of history prophesied right there, right then. Um, this is confirmed historically. It's confirmed elsewhere in Daniel. Now, the statue, the vision, the statue mimics the tabernacle and temple, as the gold, silver, bronze, and iron are all components of those things. But the basic idea is this. These kingdoms are going to come. The Jews are going to lose favor in the successive empires as these pagan empires would actually gain influence and power in the world. Now, the feet, the toes are made up of iron and clay, which really symbolizes the Jews and the Romans banded together in their unholy alliance. If you remember the beast of Revelation, there's a woman who rides the beast. That's the Jewish people tag-teaming with Rome to persecute the church. And, and, and then when they're crucifying Jesus, they say, we have no king but Caesar. So there's that unholy alliance. That, and and um, 
the, the iron is Rome, and then in Scripture, um, the potter's clay, the clay would, would have been the Jewish people. So the interesting part of this is found in, in the stone that strikes the image. Daniel explains that during that time frame, God of, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, he says. He will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It would start as a stone, right, a small stone, and then it would become, it would grow over time. This isn't an immediate growth, by the way, in the Hebrew. It's very clear. It starts small and it grows. Over time, it would become a great mountain. And that mountain would, quote, fill the earth. So the question for us is, did this come true and when? Did God set up a kingdom during the time of the Romans? The answer is yes. Jesus came preaching about the inevitability of the kingdom of God. It was near. It was at hand. The axe was already laid to the root. Jesus Christ said he brought the kingdom of God several time, times. The time is now. I'll give you two examples. One, book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe this good news. The good news of what? The time is fulfilled. Well, what time are we talking about? The time that Daniel and the other prophets had predicted. The Messiah's kingdom would in fact come and in fact it did come according to jesus the time is up the kingdom is here jesus said another example in the book of matthew chapter 12 verse 28 jesus says this but if it is by the spirit of god that i cast out demons remember they were accusing him of casting out the demons by the spirit of satan basically but he says if it's by the spirit of god that i cast out demons then the kingdom of god has come upon you Was Jesus casting out demons by the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Beelzebul, Satan? The answer is obvious. Jesus could hardly be any clearer on this. He knew and he preached and he demonstrated that he was in fact bringing the kingdom of God. The cornerstone is here and the kingdom would grow. Okay, so yeah, Jesus affirms the timing of the kingdom. He makes that very, very clear. Well, what are the characteristics of the kingdom? Is it like what Daniel said? Did Jesus say anything about the kingdom being small and then growing to fill the earth? Well, the answer is, of course, yes. In Matthew 13, verses 31 to 33, he said this. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air, this is symbolic of the nations, would come and make their nest in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was leavened. Daniel said the stone would be small and then grow to fill the earth. Jesus says the exact same thing. The timing of the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom matches exactly. God's word cannot be broken. So the question then becomes, well, what else is at play here regarding the kingdom of God? What else is at play? Okay, so he brought it on time as planned, right? The characteristics are there. Small, then it's going to grow. What else? Well, in the Old Testament, 
The gods and the idols of nations are closely tied to the leaders of those said nations. The demonic powers that be were always behind those world leaders. Uh, Daniel 10 makes it clear that there were angelic beings behind the nations of Persia. These celestial powers, these demonic forces, we will call them principalities and powers, were underneath God's sovereignty, and yet they exercised some sort of mediatorial rule over the pagan nations. They had a hierarchical role underneath God's ultimate supremacy, even though they didn't acknowledge his supremacy. So what changes, though, from the Old into the New Testament is that God sends a man, Jesus, who dethrones all of those principalities and powers and becomes the true and only mediator. Uh, Timothy says, uh, Paul says to Timothy, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is Messiah, the prince, and he is the mediator over all nations. Psalm 2 establishes this same fact. By virtue of his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus is established as the true Lord of the entire world. When he ascended to heaven, back to the Father, The father said to him, and this is Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. The question is, did Jesus forget to ask? No, he asked. The New Testament unequivocally contends that Psalm 2 was fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, not his second coming. Psalm 2, the writer, Peter quotes it, other places quote it. Um, That was a fulfillment in Jesus' first coming. That is about his kingdom where he is established on high. Flip over to Daniel chapter 7 real quick. Daniel 7, we'll pick it up in verse 13. Go ahead and read that. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, this son of man's dominion, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The vision that Daniel sees here is the ascension of Christ to the throne room, okay? After his death and resurrection, this is what happened. We're not waiting for this prophecy, this vision to be fulfilled. It happened when he ascended to the Ancient of Days. The vision is from the throne room, and Daniel sees the Son of Man go to the Ancient of Days. And verse 14 is incredibly important. And to him, to this Messiah, this Son of Man, this King, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, look at this, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, never ends, right, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here's where all this ties in, our main idea. The kingdom of God is a covenantal social order that invades all other social orders, bringing those, those kingdoms of men, if you will, underneath the lordship of Christ. 
So when you look at a text like Daniel 7, you see clearly what this kingdom involves. It is unmitigated, wholesale dominion over everything. We must understand that right now, not in the distant future like many premillennialists erroneously suggest, Christ has right now full and absolute authority over all things. What did he say after he was raised from the dead when he met with his disciples in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on the earth has been given to me, he said. So because of his obedience to the Father and because of his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ was given by the Ancient of Days, by the Father, a mediatorial kingdom. He is the mediator over all men and all institutions. All men, in order to be saved by this mediator and not condemned by this mediator, must repent of their sins and believe in him for salvation. Now... The reason I'm describing the kingdom as a social order is because it affects all realms of men. All realms, from business to art to education, you name it. Civil government. Jesus Christ has been established as a mediator and his kingdom is a social order. His kingdom tells Caesar things. His kingdom demonstrates what this looks like and that, well, how a family should be governed, right? His kingdom is a social order because it affects everything. It affects all realms of men. Many people incorrectly believe that the kingdom of God is simply a spiritual thing. This private, spiritual, just me and Jesus, my heart and Jesus thing. They don't see how, how the kingdom can have any material manifestations here on earth. This is a very dangerous dualism, so we must avoid it. The kingdom of God has order, social order. It deals with societies at large, their cultures, their languages, and what they do. Now, we've already seen here in Daniel 7 that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's what the text says. Their duty is to serve this Messiah, this prince. Which means that cultures and places, institutions and tribes, owe their allegiance to the king. This social order has all the elements of our covenant model. God is the sovereign one over everything. Christ, in this mediatorial sense, that's the hierarchy, right? Christ has authoritative dominion. The third point, the law. Um, His law, the law of Christ, the law of liberty, as James says, must be obeyed. If it isn't obeyed, there are, in fact, sanctions that come. Nations will be destroyed if they do not repent and believe in Jesus. The kingdoms of men will be wiped out if they do not worship this mediator. And this mediator's rule will, in fact, last forever. That's the last element of the covenant model, the succession, the time. It is a kingdom that he says will not pass away. It will never be destroyed. It will never end. This social order invades all others. And not listen, <laughs> this is where we've gotten this messed up, church. We've gotten this completely Messed up. Jesus isn't just Lord over the church. He's not just Lord over the church. He is Lord over every single individual. No one makes Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's been given the name above all names that they should bow down to him. 
He is Lord over every individual. He is Lord over every family. He is even Lord over all civil governments. When the church holds fast the confession that Jesus is Lord, she is saying that Caesar is not Lord. She is also saying that Jesus gets to tell Caesar what to do. Kings, nations, and peoples must bow before this king or see their lives destroyed. Isaiah 60 verse 12 proclaims, For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Sing this to the rooftops, right? This is a powerful, powerful text. The nation of America, if it will not serve, it will perish. Look, all things in principle, in principle, have been put in subjection to King Jesus. However, in practice, not everything is yet underneath his subjection. That's the mission of the church. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to pull these things over and push these things out and move this stuff around so that it sits underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has sent us to disciple the nations. That's the task, to to bring their social orders into conformity to the kingdom of God's social order. And we know that only the regenerate man will love the law of God. We know that. Only the man who is governed by the Holy Spirit can govern himself righteously. So we need the gospel message to pervade culture. And when that happens, culture is changed. But make no mistake, the Bible is absolutely clear. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20. Listen carefully. It says, He is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, listen to this, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or Or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. His cross. Listen. For far too long, for far too long, the church hasn't given an answer to society. We just, we've retreated from the world. We haven't given an answer. Especially in the realm of civil government. We have foolishly relegated the civil realm to obscurity. Well, Jesus doesn't have anything to do with that. Don't ask us, right? Don't ask us. I mean, if, if God were to suddenly convert everyone in this nation and we had to reorder and restructure everything, write a brand new constitution, a new bill of rights, everything, we had to, we had to fix it from, from education to justice. If that were to happen, most church-going people wouldn't know what to do. It'd just be chaos, all these churches are just jam-packed full and society's trying to figure it out. We all, we all love Jesus. We all love his word. We lo- love his law. What are we supposed to do? We haven't given an answer because we don't understand much of what I've just taught. 
We think that the church is, is holed up, taken fire, and that only when Christ comes will things get right. Indeed, when Christ comes, everything will get right. But listen, Scripture teaches clearly that Jesus isn't getting off of his throne until all his enemies are defeated. That's 1 Corinthians 15.25. We, we think the church is supposed to just get beat up and knocked down and lose, and that's just how it is. Well, the worse it gets, the better it is. That's nonsense. Let me tell you, the Bible I'm reading says the opposite. My Bible in Colossians 1 here says that Jesus is Lord. All the powers have been disposed, and that he is going to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now, how in the world can anyone miss this? Let's read it this way. Jesus is going to reconcile to himself all things on earth. In other words, all nations and her governments must acknowledge King Jesus. And in Psalm 2, they are told to pay homage to him, to respect him, to worship him. Otherwise, they will perish. Are you listening, Mr. President? And that's not just a threat of hell. That's a threat of being removed and disposed in history. And when Jesus said that we're to disciple the nations, he didn't just mean, you know, make them sign a card, make them walk up front, and we'll just mark them off as they're saved. That's not what he was saying. When he said to disciple the nations, he meant that every person and every institution must be brought under the lordship of Christ Jesus. And when Jesus died, he didn't just forgive your sins, he dethroned Satan. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't just give you justification by faith alone. He has been declared to be, according to Romans 1, the Lord of the earth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, listen, listen to these couple of verses. He says, quote, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. The rulers didn't know, nor did they pay attention to the fact that by putting Jesus up on a cross, nailing him to the cross, murdering our Lord and Savior, by doing that, they were bringing down their own kingdom. Jesus said in John 16, 11, that the ruler of this world is judged. He has been dethroned. And Jesus' death was a revolutionary triumph. Listen to Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. According to Revelation 1.5, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Jesus is raised, therefore he's the ruler. He's the one in charge. He's the mediator. He's the king of kings. And in him we must submit to. Listen, we're not trying to get Jesus elected to some position. We're not going around knocking on door to door. Hey, vote for Jesus, right? We're not doing that nonsense, okay? We're not getting him elected. 
We are announcing that the world has been purchased by the blood of Christ and that all men, women, and children everywhere are to come to this king and be forgiven. We aren't declaring this in hopes that it will become true. We speak because it it is true. We're not hoping that Jesus will someday get authority over the earth. Jesus already has all authority over the earth. The church is not a cute little club, you know, trying hard to get our candidate to win. We're not telling the world something that we're trying to do. We're telling the world that something has already been done. Our king is enthroned. And on the basis of Christ's bloody cross, empty tomb, and his subsequent ascension to the Father, we are going out into the world declaring and announcing to the nations that it is their duty to submit themselves to this king. The city has been taken. This new king has now been installed. The former rulers, they've been disposed. Resistance is futile. Deal with it. Which means Christianity is very much a public thing, right? The world wants us to be, back off. Stay away from this. They want, they want this relegated to some sort of private affair. But if that's what they wanted, they should not have killed Jesus out in public. Church, we're not some volunteer organization where people are kind of just in and out all the time, whatever. This kingdom is Christ's kingdom. This is a monarchy. He is Lord. The kingdom of God has everything to do with civil government because civil leaders, listen carefully, I don't care if it's the President of the United States, Prime Minister in Britain, I don't care if it's Congress, the Supreme Court, the governors of our great states, or a local mayor, all civil leaders are under obligation to bow before Messiah the Prince. In recent years, the church has absolutely lost this biblical vision. We've just lost it. We need to get it back. We need godly leaders in office. And maybe some of you here should run for office. We need leaders who will resist tyranny instead of capitulating to everything these ungodly and unrighteous leaders decide to do. What we need most of all is a revival built on this kingdom vision. We can't say much to Caesar if we don't have what we mean in order Jesus is Lord. That is politics. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled that you would receive our worship. We know that the only way our worship can be considered is because of your son and his spilt blood for us. Time and time again, we get too cozy with the world and forget just how holy and pure you are. Revive us, Lord, so that we may repent of complacency. Keep us from sins of presumption. Grant to us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, a larger kingdom vision. Your church is here to stay, though admittedly it doesn't look like that. Give us repentance so we don't falter. Give us courage that we can stand before kings and tell them your law. Father, would you strengthen Callwood Church? Would you cultivate hearts of generosity so that we can give back to your kingdom work? Would would you use each of us day to day in our homes and at our jobs? We love you, Lord Jesus, and we bow before you this day. In his name I pray, amen.